Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. It is Friday. It's the Three Martini Lunch. Glad you're with us at the end of another very busy week. Good, bad, and crazy martinis for you. Brought to you today by the Headspace app. And Jim, we do have an actual good martini. But uh, first, I have to get your reaction, which I think is a good martini in your own mind. The Jets have a new coach, Robert Saleh, I think is how you say his name, former defensive coordinator for the 49ers. I know two years ago, you knew exactly what you were going to get with Adam Gase, and you were exactly right. What's your reaction this time? I, I find myself with these very strange feelings, Greg, that I'm not used to. Optimism, good <laughs> cheer, hope, maybe even confidence. Um, look, it sounds like Robert Sala. Sala. It's my Indiana Jones coming out if I keep calling him Sala. Um, <laughs> you know, highly regarded, res- very much respected around the league. He's full of energy and animation. Uh, was under uh, Pete Carroll for a while, and he kind of has that kind of personality and both uh, aggressive uh, style in the way he manages the defense. Uh, he interviewed with, I think, just about every team, and I'm very pleased the Jets went out and got their guy. Um, you know, no guarantee of success in this league, but after you know two years, I'll just skip. Just imagine that I spent the next three hours complaining about Adam Gase. Okay, and then uh, you know <laughs> Todd Bowles, who was uh, you know not a, I don't think a terrible coach, a good defensive coordinator who. Couldn't quite make the jump, but Todd Bowles was the sphinx on the sideline. He was not full of, you know. Um, and I look back on the Jets coaches that I've liked, the Herm Edwardses, the, the Rex Ryans. You know, give it a choice. I prefer a high-energy, emotional coach who, who can get people fired up and all that stuff compared to, uh, you know, the, the, the alternative. So cautiously optimistic. Um, very pleased the Jets are able to get their guy. New hope for the future. We'll see how things go. Good luck to the Jets. Uh, Jim, let's talk about our actual good martini here. And the good martini is, for once, a publication that does not bend to the mob. We know what happened at the Atlantic when they hired for about 10 minutes, Kevin Williamson. Uh, The staff revolted, and uh, Jeffrey Goldberg caved into the staff. Williamson was let go. Now, of course, he's back with National Review, so it's everybody's gain there. But uh, then, of course, there was uh, the New York Times publishing the op-ed from Tom Cotton last summer during the riots, and the editorial newsroom went ballistic. Everybody's resigning. Uh, The inmates were running the asylum. And we thought we might get that yesterday with Politico. Politico has this section called The Playbook. I can't say that I read Politico on a super regular basis, but we check there a lot for possible things to discuss on the podcast. And The Playbook, they often allow somebody who doesn't work for Politico to do a guest job writing The Playbook. For example, the day before yesterday, it was Chris Hayes of MSNBC. Not exactly a nonpartisan. Yesterday, it was Ben Shapiro, founder of The Daily Wire. And guess which one the Politico staff revolted against? That would be Ben Shapiro. They had 200 plus people on a conference call because the staff was seething yesterday. But the editors did not buckle. In fact, releasing a statement in part that says, We have taken great care to assemble a roster of guest authors who are prominent thinkers and writers who represent a range of perspectives. What sets Politico apart in this intense political and media moment is that we rise above partisanship and ideological warfare, even as many seek to drag us into it. It's a core value of the publication that is unchangeable and that above all protects our ability to do independent journalism. It's a part of our mission. Your mileage may vary on how nonpartisan Politico is, but uh, the fact that they pushed back here 
and did not do some groveling mea culpa to keep the 20-somethings in the newsroom happy, Jim. That's good news. Yeah, and it's it's a rare courage in the world of, I'm going to call mainstream media journalism. Um, I'll just kind of fill in some of the background here. Playbook, I believe, was originally started by Mike Allen, who has pretty much long since left Politico to start uh, the group with Axios. Um, I think they had Jake Sherman and somebody else write it for a lot of years. And I think Sherman moved on to some other publication. So pretty much from the beginning of the year, they've had guest writers in the introduction. I think Ken Burns did one with some links to his videos and things like that. Um, Each one of them is doing only one day. So it's not like they're auditioning replacements, I don't think. And Ben Shapiro has a pretty decent uh, platform as is. I don't think, I don't know if Ben Shapiro is necessarily interested in uh, taking over that. By the way, like, you know, entirely separate from the, you know, the left, the lefties in the newsroom getting up in arms and furious and, and furious about this. Ben Shapiro is a little bit of an odd choice to guest write the Politico Playbook newsletter. Um, for those who aren't familiar, and I'll understand if you're not, Politico's Playbook newsletter is maybe the second or third best morning newsletter about politics. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's good. You know, it's, it's no morning, Joel. Um, but honestly, oh, you know, joking aside, most days it's very Capitol Hill heavy, very inside baseball. Kind of reminds me of what I used to write in the, the congressional quarterly days. Um, you know, if, if that's what you're interested in, it's great, but it's full of like, you know, mega scoop. Congressman Floyd Turbo of Kansas has beaten out Yosemite Sam of Nevada to be ranking member on the House Small Business Subcommittee on Rural Development, Agriculture, Trade, and Entrepreneurship. Uh, and it lists birthdays and per- big personnel moves that the uh, Council of the Railroads and Highways Subcommittee is moving to the lobbying firm of Dewey, Cheatham, and Howe. Um, <laughs> And if, if that's what you care about, great. It's, it's really good at that. As you probably notice, that's not really what Ben Shapiro's about. He's, you know, uh, uh, a, a ubiquitous and well-read and well-respected and well-liked uh, columnist and radio commentator and, and podcast and, and campus speaker and, and all kinds of stuff. Um, so I'm not surprised that some, some folks at Politico would look at that and say, huh, him, Really? But he's no more a partisan figure than Chris Hayes. And what he wrote today wasn't that. I just I can't imagine getting that up in arms about it unless you have a blanket perspective that conservatives should never be a guest writer of the Politico newsletter. And that, if that's your view, fine. But then you probably shouldn't be all that comfortable with outspoken liberals being uh, guest editors or guest writers of the Politico newsletter. Or if you do think, you know, you should have liberals but not conservatives, fine. But then be open about it and say Politico is a liberal publication. I think the thing, the comment that was most troubling in all this was from one unidentified staffer. I think it was Eric Wemple, the Washington Post, who was uh, listening in on the uh, conference call over this. Someone complained and said, and basically made the comparison, how are we supposed to get people to trust us when we're publishing people like Ben Shapiro or Alex Jones or folks like that? And it was very clear the speaker believed that Ben Shapiro was morally, in terms of accuracy and in terms of reliability and partisanship and all and sanity, indistinguishable between Ben Shapiro and Alex Jones. Now, I'm sure at some point I've disagreed with something Ben Shapiro's done. He's not a perfect guy, but he's not Alex Jones. And there's a lot of base stealing when you lump together somebody who's a, a you know, frothing at the mouth, uh, a tinfoil hat lunatic and Ben Shapiro. And the fact that somebody who covers politics for Politico can't distinguish between those two 
is probably like the biggest and most significant red flag here. But yeah, it's, you know, considering all the times we've seen the New York Times editors and everybody else completely buckle under to these internal staff insurrections, um, this is a, a positive sign, a good sign. And just an interesting remembrance of who's actually running the publication, who gets to make these kinds of decisions. Exactly. Let's hope a week from now this narrative hasn't changed and they haven't actually uh, folded on this because that certainly could be possible. But uh, they did care about their feelings, which I know uh, Ben is famous for saying facts don't care about your feelings. They did listen to you, but they're not about to change their policy. So uh, anyway, good job, editors of Politico, on that front. But uh, for, hey, if you are a Politico staffer and this has really overwhelmed you, the Headspace app might be right for you because, look, even in the new year, it's hard to start a new routine. But if you're one of the 34% of Americans who made a resolution to be less stressed, Headspace is here to help. Headspace is your daily dose of mindfulness in the form of guided meditations in an easy-to-use app. Headspace is one of the only meditation apps that is advancing the field of mindfulness and meditation through clinically validated research. For example, if you need some help falling asleep, Headspace has wind-down sessions that their members swear by. For parents, Headspace even has morning meditations you can do with your kids. Headspace is backed by 25 published studies on its benefits, 600,000 five-star reviews, and over 60 million downloads. Headspace makes it easy for you to build a life-changing meditation practice with mindfulness that works for you on your schedule anytime, anywhere. And as we've said before, our chief of operations at Radio America has said several of my Radio America colleagues have found Headspace helpful, keeps them calmer, helps them sleep better, just less stressed in general. You deserve to feel happier, and Headspace is meditation made simple. Go to headspace.com slash martini. That's headspace.com slash martini for a free one-month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditations for every situation. Now, this is the best deal being offered right now, so head to headspace.com dot com slash martini today. All right, Jim, let's talk about our bad martini now. We've got our first legislative proposal from the Biden administration, and it's already our bad martini. I'm noticing a trend, even though it's only one. But uh, here we go. It's called the American Rescue Plan. $1.9 trillion coronavirus rescue package. Some of these provisions, Jim, seem pretty similar to what we've seen in previous relief packages. Uh, For example, there are going to be direct payments of $1,400 to what CNBC calls most Americans, bringing the total relief up to $2,000. That was the big issue people were talking about a few weeks ago, uh, instead of the $600 payments that were given out to some families in December. Uh, Also, they're going to increase the federal per week unemployment benefit to $400 and extend it through the end of September. Uh, Another piece of potential good news here is making the child tax credit fully refundable for the year and increasing the credit to $3,000 per child or $3,600 for a child under the age of six. Uh, Things that we're not going to like, though. Increasing the federal minimum wage to $15 per hour, also $350 billion in state and local government aid. Some of that may be relevant, but I know Republicans, including Mitch McConnell and many others, have said that the Democrats are looking for this to be a way to bail out blue states that have been horrifically mismanaged for years, like Illinois, California, New York, perhaps several others. Uh, And they're extending the eviction and foreclosure moratoriums until the end of September, which is great for renters. But, Jim, I don't see a lot of relief for landlords 
landlords. They have to make money somehow. But I think the biggest thing here is slamming in the $15 minimum wage provision here right at a time when so many small businesses are on the brink. The left never learns that this is a job killer and potentially a business killer. Yeah, look, if there's one piece of this bill that you got to yank out uh, and, and you know, to minimize the economic damage to the country, it's this. And I say this as a guy whose opposition to raising the minimum wage has been softening a bit. Um, I think you look at the election results. I think you look at the parts of the the parts of the the Trump message that have resonated, and there's a quite a bit of people who look at it and say, "Look, if you can raise incomes at the bottom of the scale, a whole bunch of good you know consequences flow out of that. Social, psychological, economic, obviously, but you know generally it builds a better society. The problem is you raise the minimum wage to fifteen dollars an hour, and every business that can't afford to do that." is either going to look at automation to figure out if they can replace uh, their employees with them. They're going to try to cut their workforce and lose jobs, or they're going to, going to go out of business entirely. And after the year we've had, the last thing we want is more small businesses going out of business entirely. Um, the, what I would put on the table to Democrats that they probably reject, but I don't think they recognize what a significant step this would be. It's like, look, first of all, I want minimum wages set by the state. Um, you can have a national floor, of course, and, and certain states can go ahead of that, but cost of living is going to be different in different parts of the country. The second thing is I'd like it to be you know, somehow tailored in relation to the amount of available workers that are out there, the amount of jobs that are out there. Like it doesn't make sense to raise the minimum wage at a time like this when unemployment is already pretty high, particularly compared to the last couple of years. And you have lots of people looking for work and the business cycle is down and lots of comp- lots of particularly small businesses are feeling squeezed. Like this is just the wrong time. Now in a year from now, if we've all been vaccinated and the economy is getting close to where it was in say February, 2020, before this pandemic came along and hit us, then maybe it makes sense to raise the minimum wage. Again, I prefer state level. I prefer it. You know, maybe you want to index it for inflation. I, I you know, feel like the, the idea of uh, doing this for, for summer workers and for teenagers, they really don't need it the same way other workers do. Uh, so I'm willing to talk on this, but if they try to enact a $15 an hour, coast to coast, all 50 state, all 50 states at once, you're going to end up putting another hammer onto small businesses, and you're going to get even less of what we want to see. A lot of different things that need to be addressed here. Uh, there's also $170 billion for K through 12 schools. So despite their deplorable track record over the past several months, the teachers unions seem to win again. $50 billion for COVID-19 testing and $20 billion towards the national vaccine program. But Jim, we got a little bit of a double whammy bad martini here because this is only the first major spending initiative that Biden wants to do in relation to this. According to CNBC, the second bill expected in February will tackle the president-elect's longer-term goals of creating jobs. Seems good, but we'll see what the details are. Reforming infrastructure. Seems important. We'll see what the details are. Combating climate change and advancing racial equity. Do you feel your freedom in your wallet shrinking when you hear about a climate change agenda coming with a huge price tag? Greg, isn't it kind of amazing that for all of those different problems, the Biden administration's solution is always a giant spending bill? (laughs) Money solves everything. Hey, guys, it's Mock and Daisy from Chicks on the Right. We're excited to tell you about our podcast, the Mock and Daisy Common Sense Cast. From discussing topics like cancel culture, what's happening to our new generations, crises in our nation, and even some high-profile interviews, each week we touch on subjects that matter to us and matter to you. And we're not afraid to tell you how it is. So tune in every week to hear us talk about the things or 
even just get a good laugh. To find out more, go to our website, chicksontheright.com, or start listening on the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Don't forget to leave a comment, a review, and subscribe. All right, Jim, let's move on to our crazy martini. And this is maddening in a number of different ways, both in what has been discovered, which a lot of people will say, I told you so, and the timing. It is January 15th, five days before Biden is inaugurated. This is from Newsweek, which somehow has turned into a more reputable publication. I didn't even really understand why it's still in existence. It was really super crazy left there for a while, but now they're doing real news. Uh, It says a study evaluating COVID-19 responses around the world found that mandatory lockdown orders early in the pandemic did not provide significantly more benefits to slowing the spread of the disease than other voluntary measures such as social distancing or travel reduction. The peer-reviewed study, which was conducted by a group of Stanford researchers and published in the Wiley Online Library on January 5th, analyzed coronavirus case growth in 10 countries in early 2020. The study compared cases in England, France, Germany, Iran, Italy, Netherlands, Spain, and the U.S., all countries that implemented mandatory lockdown orders and business closures, to South Korea and Sweden, which implemented less severe voluntary responses. It aimed to analyze the effect that less restrictive or more restrictive measures had on changing individual behavior and curbing the transmission of the virus. Then they get into methodology a little bit here. Uh, But the bottom line is, using this model, the researchers determined there is, quote, no clear, significant, beneficial effect of more restrictive measures on case growth in any country. And Jim, uh, in terms of the timing, you now have uh, quotes from Andrew Cuomo, the uh, the governor of New York, and the mayor of Chicago, Lori Lightfoot, saying, you know what? You know, we really got to get the economy going again. Uh, These restrictions that we just can't keep them going forever. curious (laughs) you know we've seen a lot of bad predictions during this pandemic greg and two of them you know i will will stick with me for a long time were the likes of uh eric trump saying uh you just you watch and wait and see after uh, election day nobody's going to talk about coronavirus or COVID again well that's not true but the other one i heard throughout this was people who argued that states were shutting down as as fast as possible as far-reaching as possible as draconianly as possible because they wanted to tank their economies, because they wanted the economy to do badly, uh, and that that way people would be frustrated and they would vote against Trump and they'd vote for Biden and Democrats would win. And I didn't think it was all that plausible because in part, you know, the states that were doing most draconian, uh, New York and Illinois and California and New Jersey, were all pretty democratic as is. And so it wasn't like you need to tank that economy. You know, it's not like those, those states were ever really in that much danger for Biden. It didn't really make sense. But we have seen fairly shocking changes in terms of the the tune we're hearing from certain lawmakers. Uh, Two that jump to mind are Lori Lightfoot, the mayor of Chicago, who now says she wants to reopen bars and restaurants as quickly as possible. Greg, am I wrong that like a month ago, if you said that, they accused you of wanting to kill grandma? Absolutely. Andrew Cuomo is now saying we need to reopen the arts and businesses because we cannot wait. Oh, really? Oh, really? Because in May, Cuomo was saying, I won't sacrifice human lives to reopen. How many lives are you willing to lose to reopen the economy? We don't want to lose any lives. Come on. It'd be nice if these governors and these mayors and these people could say, look, we've shut down as many businesses as possible, as many public gatherings as possible. We've tried to keep people in their homes as long as we could. We now learned, like, you know, if you look at all of the various, you know, moves various states have made and stuff, uh, all the different closures and changes and restrictions, 
you look at how rates have gone up and down. Single biggest factor was, was weather, right? People are indoors. They spend more time around each other. Virus spreads faster. Weather gets warmer. People spend more time outdoors. Virus spreads less quickly. That, that, that's the bigger factor than any particular thing any governor did. They don't like to acknowledge that. They want to believe that they've got all the answers and they've got the magic touch and somehow they know how to protect us. It's really kind of frightening to think that state rules might not make that much of a difference and that city rules might not make that much of a difference. But anyway, here we are. And if they said, you know what? Look, I've realized we are just inflicting unacceptable damage on our state's economy or our city's economy. I admit it's time to open up. Great. I'd love to see that. None of these guys would acknowledge the possibility they were any wrong, that they were wrong at any point. And that's what's extra- extraordinarily frustrating. I'm glad they've come around. I think, Greg, is, can we close out the week by quoting the wise philosopher, John McClain, and welcome to the party, pal. Would that fit? Wow. Twice in one week for John McClain's philosophy. This is turning out to be a pretty good week after all. Oh, man. But, you know, the Democrats used to be more slick about this. You know, Joe Biden's talking about his 100 days of everybody wearing a mask and uh, we're going to get the schools open at the end of that 100 days. Instead, they see the inauguration on the calendar. And they're like, yeah, let's just do it now. Let's just open it up now. Uh, that, that won't add to uh, people's uh, doubts about how serious you were in the first place at all. Uh, hey, you know what, Greg? It really is Friday today. <laughs> Couldn't come soon enough. Jim, have a great weekend. We'll see you again on Monday. See you Monday, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus, Radio America. Thanks very much for being with us today. Don't forget about Headspace. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch podcast. We're very grateful for your kind reviews and your five-star ratings. Get us on those home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Have a terrific weekend, and please join us Monday for the next Three Martini Lunch.